Welcome to today's Burning Archive. On this show, I am going to share the inside story of how I wrote and published my poetry. How I still, in my late 50s, write poetry. Uh, Despite my life as a bureaucrat, despite never really thinking of myself as a poet, and how I published my book of poems, of my collected poems, Gathering Flowers of the Mind, in 2021. And, well, may you ask how any of this relates to the theme of this podcast, that is history. What does the poetry of a very, very minor government official have to do with history? That is the question on today's Burning Archive. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. On the Burning Archive, um, I am Jeff Rich. I am a podcaster, obviously. Uh, a poet, obviously, I guess, from the uh, the uh, title of the uh, episode, uh, and a writer, and uh, this is the Burning Archive podcast, and on the Burning Archive, I talk about history and how the past is not dead, the past is not even past, how... The stories of the past make themselves felt in our lives today, whether that is in big global events like wars and politics, or in the cultures or civilizations or nations or identities, whichever term you prefer, of the vast multipolar world. That world which has so many cultures, so many traditions that we can share together or we can choose to let divide us. Uh, And on this podcast and in my writing, I strive, I choose to find the stories that help us live well together to coexist peacefully on this one earth. The stories of the past can appall us. Uh, A lot of bad things have happened in history. After all, uh, for example, I've spent years looking into the life of Ivan the Terrible. And uh, you can check out uh, my podcast on that topic if you're interested in being appalled by the stories of the past. But those stories of the past can also inspire us. Uh, History has an almost infinite wealth of different perspectives, characters, twists and turns, tragedies and comedies. And how we tell the stories of the past uh, can help us share the cultures of the world to share uh, the diversity of the world to admire the gifts these cultures offer us but they can also how we tell the stories of the past can also divide us they can encourage us to exclude to hate to cancel to destroy or to nurse grievances 
So the stories of the past can open minds, but they can also close minds. History can be used for propaganda purposes, just as any other form of thought or social science or uh, mass communications can be. Film, all forms of art can be used for propaganda. Indeed, uh, history has long been essential to propaganda of various forms. George Orwell said, history is written by the victors. Not the whole truth, I would say, since history gets written by all parties, especially these days, but also in the past. And it also gets written by lots of observers who had absolutely nothing to do with the fight. Journalists claim to write the first draft of history, after all. But we are all historians in our own way. That's the kind of philosophy I bring to the way I share stories about the past on this podcast. But the victors certainly do seek to control the narrative, as people say, of the ongoing media manipulation practiced by uh, the vast political media complex that delivers us the so-called news on our screens every minute, every hour and every day, whatever you choose to call it. And that controlled narrative can even be an act of war, of information war, of cultural war. Orwell, George Orwell, also said reportedly that the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. Again, perhaps this view is that of an intellectual I would have thought the Holocaust is perhaps a more effective way to destroy a people. Uh, Americans dropping two nuclear bombs on Japan and firebombing its cities or the mass ideological killings of Pol Pot in Cambodia. But the point remains how we tell stories about the past are fundamental to who we think we are. Ah, it's fundamental to, I guess, what you might call our identity. Histories set our place in the flow of time, the flow of events as we experience them in our mind and in the small worlds of our direct personal experience, home, family, work, travel. And then in the large worlds of politics, of nations, of cultures, of civilizations, of the endless drama on the news, of celebrities, of culture with a capital C. All of that which we, in truth, only ever really imagine through a glass darkly since we mostly only ever experience it indirectly as a spectacle that we observe 
not as in an event in which we participate. We invent and infer stories, histories, in other words, about this bigger world and what it means for our small known world. And the way we tell those stories, uh, the images, the metaphors that control those stories, that grip our minds or free our minds, those stories are not only the exclusive preserve of history books, not the exclusive preserve of academic history or famous popular histories, but that they're also told in the personal narratives of our life stories, of our dreams, and even in poetry. To return after a long detour to the topic of this podcast. Epic poems, after all, were a way of telling history, of making the past not dead, but still alive and present in the moment to make legends, gods even, and the values that people cherished alive and present in their imaginations. Epic poems uh, that told history like the Mahabharata, the great Indian epic from long ago, the Iliad, the epic of Gilgamesh, King Arthur of the Round Table, El Cid, the night journeys of shaman, the folk songs of a thousand cultures, the songlines of Central Australia. In the Mahabharata, it is written that time creates all things and time destroys them all. This is a truthful statement, a beautiful statement, but it is not a statement of academic history. It is not a statement of Western, rational, organized storytelling based on documents and timelines. But it is a statement of poetry, of wisdom, of insight, of inquiry, of history. History which was from the Greek, ancient Greek word, word Historia, meaning inquiry. And last week on the podcast, I shared how uh, the image of the burning archive, the burning archive, that image which gave the name for my blog, my book, uh, this podcast, my a poem, that image of the burning archive emerged first as a poem, as poetry. Uh, as a way of telling history through poetry. And indeed, that image itself responded to a very enigmatic, one could almost say poetic text by 
the German-Jewish writer on history, amongst many other things, Walter Benjamin, who uh, wrote in his very unpoetically titled Theses, as in academic theses, propositions, theses, uh, I have a tendency not to pronounce my THs properly, so I'm not saying feces. I'm saying theses on the philosophy of history. He wrote about an image of the angel of history that appeared in a painting by Paul Klee, or Clay. And that text by Walter Benjamin quotes some verses of poetry from the scholar of Jewish mysticism, uh, Gerard Shulam, and then says, and I'll read from this text, it's just a short paragraph, a clay painting named Angelus Novus, New Angel, shows an angel looking as though he is about to move away from something. He is fixedly contemplating. His eyes are staring, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past, where we perceive a chain of events, a rational chain of events. He sees one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. This storm is what we call progress. And that remarkable, uh, enigmatic, poetic text by, uh, you know, one of the more influential cultural Marxist uh, historians, cultural critics, member of the Frankfurt School um, in 1920s, 1930s Germany. He is, uh, it is uh, a classic example of telling stories about the past of about history in ways that are not uh, I guess traditional forms of storytelling that are if you like almost poetry and uh, Benjamin is often described as eclectic is he an historian a cultural critic a literary critic an essayist or a poet pretending to be an academic cultural Marxist and this strange eclectic misplaced intellectual who did 
in the end meet a uh, tragic fate fleeing uh, fleeing Germany in the 1930s um, suiciding as he crossed over into Spain this strange eclectic misplaced intellectual has always been a model for me in how I have written about the past he wrote fragments he fitted no genre He was uneasy in institutional settings. He saw angels and he had his demons. And uh, last week, in last week's podcast, in the last episode of The Burning Archive, episode 86, I described how I wrote and published my book uh, of prose essays and fragments from The Burning Archive. Despite my long career as a bureaucrat, I described how I wrestled with being a daytime bureaucrat and a nighttime writer. And then within my nighttime weekend writing practice, I've similarly oscillated between and mixed up in different combinations prose and poetry poetry and history, fact and fiction, reason and myth, structured logical storytelling and dreamlike, intuited imagery. It is why, though I write and talk uh, about history, even make YouTube videos about history, I don't really see myself as an historian, a professional historian. Uh, It may have been one of the reasons I could never quite settle into the career path of the academic historian. I wanted to write poetic history, but there were no jobs for that. So I ended up being a failed bureaucrat who sometimes wrote poetry, inspired by the past on the weekends and the writing of that poetry was also never quite about being a poet or working within one or other tradition or school or faction or technique or slam performance of modern western poetry fame was never the spur I imagined myself rather like Emily Dickinson with her handwritten bundles of poems discovered after her death. Or like uh, Wallace Stevens, another American poet, leading a quiet suburban life, walking to his office as an insurance executive and composing his poems along the way, but being largely silent within the American literary scene until his mid-50s. In some ways, Japanese poets, or at least how I imagined Japanese poets, were also more of a model. Uh, The practice of poetry was a kind of mindful awareness, a kind of detachment and observation, a kind of uh, wabi-sabi, the Japanese aesthetic that appreciates beauty that is imperfect, impermanent 
and incomplete in nature. The poems were in the phrase that came to me in a poem, a way of gathering flowers of the mind. In my book, Gathering Flowers of the Mind, Collected Poems, 1996-2020, and I'll include a a link to where you can buy uh, Gathering Flowers of the Mind as a paperback or as an e-book in the notes for this podcast, but it's available on Amazon and um, other online retailers. In Gathering Flowers of the Mind, I included a sort of preface to the poems that provided a bit of an account of how I made the journey from frustrated bureaucrat to published poet. And let me pick up the story from there. Emily Dickinson gathered the flowers of her exquisite mind into 40 carefully arranged fascicles, small bundles of handwritten pages bound together by hand-stitched thread. Fascicles referred in the 19th century to a bunch of flowers or plants held in a bunch, often as a botanical specimen. It is now a word rarely used, except to describe the legacy of Dickinson's mind that was discovered at her death. Over the last 30 years, I have collected my own fascicles of poetry, and here in this collection of poems, written from the mid-1990s until January 2020, to the cusp of the pandemic and the great seclusion are five fascicles which I planned after much prevarication and pondering to publish separately but decided ultimately to gather together into this single volume gathering the flowers of the mind collected poems 1996 2020 Publishing my poetry is a decision I made with some difficulty and late in life. Few of these poems were written with much expectation of publication and rather they remain for me transcriptions of my experience of creating them. I do not revise with a theory of poetics or a melodrama of perfectionism in my mind. My mental world is altogether too frail and too influenced by Zen aesthetics of uh, wabi-sabi to revise these poems to death. Yet I have only slowly shaken off both the fears of rejection by publishers and the mesmerizing model of Emily Dickinson's secluded heritage discovered after her death. I have long lived apart from literary and publishing circles, pursuing a modest career as a lowly undercastellan, a term from Kafka's The Castle, a bit of a bureaucratic in-joke there, in a minor provincial government which has induced institutional and legal discouragement to sharing my true voice. If my poems could be said to be that, 
in the public domain. The quavers and longings in that voice, moreover, have grown less fashionable over the decades, less conforming with the regimented assertions of selected identities, not difference, Jack Derrida's word for uh, in contrast to identity, the sort of endless um, creation of meaning through the differences, the, the differences between things, uh, the differences between w words and, and meanings. Uh, so, less comfort, uh, the quavers and longings in that voice, moreover, have grown less fashionable over the decades, less conforming with the regimented assertions of selected identities, not difference, so popular in cultural circles today. Nor did I ever have the entrepreneurial spirit and chutzpah uh, to sell my lyrics to whatever market could bear them. I have sheltered from and not sought out the literary world. And then I go on to describe how, uh, similar to what I did uh, last week, how the slow discovery of the, the new world of indie publishing opened things up uh, to share my poems with the world. The first of my poems uh, to be published, Dream Life, appeared in the small journal Ars Poetica. For those less familiar with poetry, that Ars Poetica is the term for the philosophy, the art, the, the technique, the, the, the method of poetry one adopts. I shared a few poems on online forums, but it was not until 2013 that I came out as a poet, so to speak, and published a selection after the pills as an ebook on smash words whether a single person has purchased this ebook other than myself i do not know yet the very act of publishing freely in my own name set me on a new path since 2015 i have gathered my poetry essays and other flowers of my mind at my blog, theburningarchive.com. There I have accumulated an online collection of writings on culture, history, literature, madness, memory, psyche and governing, and become less self-concealing as an author after the pills was a crucial step in that journey. At the age of 50, I finally revealed to the world, in my own name, the writing that was of most meaning to me, that I had been creating despite the weaknesses of my mind for 30 years. And then uh, I've organised uh, the book into five fascicles, five parts, which uh, which are, so part one is, uh, sorry, Dreams Before the Pills, Part 2 is After the Pills, Part 3 is The Burning Archive, which includes the poem uh, The Burning Archive, The Beginning, which I think I read in the podcast last week. Part 4 is Dr. Cogito's Rebellion, which is a reference to Mr. Cogito, 
a, a, a series of poems by Zbigniew Herbert. And finally, part five is Meditations. Uh, so I thought what I would do today is just read one short poem from each of those five sections to give you a bit of a taste of the poetry and to let you make your decision about whether you'd like to support me by buying a copy of Gathering Flowers uh, of the Mind and enjoy uh, some of the other poems. So first of all, I'm going to read a section from Dreams Before the Pills, a poem called Word Slum. This Sunday morning, my hands smell of bleach as I stare at this screen, hoping words will return from the place my work has chased them. Every minute I turn away to listen to my child's restless sniffles in the room beside this one. The writing place, the retreat, the study. Every surface is strewn with papers, CDs, magazines, reports and notes. It is a word slum. From this crowded tenement I must find in the hour or less I have left the words who will sing to my woken child. And then I will read from part two, which is After the Pills. And this is a poem called Gould's Humming. And as in G-O-U-L-D, as in Glenn Gould, the famous, uh, perhaps not so famous these days, but when I was growing up, he was famous, Glenn Gould. Uh, and there was, I think, a, a wonderful film in the 80s or early 90s, 32 pieces about Glenn Gould which uh, sort of told the story of the life of Glenn Gould um, and played off the fact that Glenn Gould was particularly associated with uh, his virtuosic performance of t of um, Johann Sebastian Bach's Goldberg Variations, of course, and there are 32 variations in the Goldberg Variations. Uh, which are all variations on a single aria. And indeed, it is that aria that began the show, the music at the start of the show today, and is the traditional music that I play at the start of the Burning Archive. And uh, Glenn Gould famously made two recordings of the Goldberg Variations, uh, one is in, recorded in his youth in the 50s. Brilliant and almost uh, exhilarating in a way. It's extraordinary speed given the complexity of the music. And then the second, uh, which was recorded in 1981, shortly before his death after much suffering, including benzodiazepine direct, uh, addictions and that sort of thing, uh, Glenn Gould recorded a second 
performance of the Goldberg variations, which is like, I don't know, 25, 30% longer, much slower, and yeah, during which you can hear him humming along to the music. So Gould's humming. In the first aria, he begins to hum. This is the trace of true art and magic, ghostly. At one with the music, but different and beyond. An awed text, someone might say. Outside the text, that is. A moment's expression endures through recording. This ghost of the artist, unbidden, improvised, unscored, not even beautiful, but it becomes what I listen for each time, to search again for traces of the dead in our lives. And the third uh, poem I'm going to read is from the third section, or fascicle, of Gathering Flowers of the Mind, and that is the Burning Archive. I won't read the Burning Archive poem itself, but I'll read a poem called History, since this is, after all, a podcast about the relationship between history and poetry. History. We call it the judgment of history, but no bench sits, no advocate argues, nor objects, no sentence is ever passed, except to declare the forgetting of all names. Vainglory rests in our present floors, not the archives, where stand the buried army of the past. Imprisoned in paper cells and steel walls, deprived of touch and breath, this army weeps behind crumbling paper veils. Their only visitor is the beguiled seeker who walks through the air seal's breach. Dr. Cogito in dustless white gloves. He searches for the scrap of spirit that makes the song that they will sing and by singing betray its double. The never-rooted, comic-gestured song haunts the burial ground. The fleeing angel in the fiery wind wails and tears helplessly at her wings. Then we, who stand on firmer ground, who live obsessed with the flurry of this world, betray the naive trust of the dead and gone. We speak their parts all wrong. We pull apart the broken toys of our world. We fail, but leave traces in sacred ground. The fourth poem I will read is from the fourth section, Dr. Cogito's Rebellion. And there's a whole bunch of poems there which uh, relate to a sort of alter, you know, a, a persona of the poet, Dr. Cogito, a sort of um, 
a, a reincarnation of Zbigniew Herbert's Mr. Cogito. And, uh, but I won't read one of the Dr. Cogito poems, although I think he might make an appearance in this one. I will read a poem called The Tethered, T-E-T-H-E-R-E-D, The Tethered Mind. The mind prowls, tethered to its past. An unknown unknown rises alone. From unclaimed graves of fidgety glances. The waves come for the fallen swimmer. Again and again. They roll fast. They suck his feet into the undertow. A macadamia tree in a shadowed grove where dreams were made. Rots and blackens drown below the lapping murk of Brisbane spill. Something else happened there. Something I cannot sit with. Cannot say, not even now. Not at all. But for the leather chafing my neck in thrall. And then uh, the final poem I will read is also it is from the last section of the book called Meditations, reflecting perhaps some of that uh, sense in which uh, I saw the writing of my poetry as a form of a form of walking meditation almost, but. Uh, so this poem is also called History. Perhaps you could call that a, a proofing error on my part that I've got two poems in the one book called History, but uh, we'll let that aside for now. Maybe it should have been called History too. Uh, history. Nothing these days is as it seems. And ideas, well, don't trust them. I pore over the all-too-human follies of dynasties and revolutions and create like Casabon. Casabon's the character from uh, a George Eliot novel uh, who is sort of writing this, he's sort of like a dry old scholarly character who mar marries this vivacious uh, woman and uh, uh, dedicates himself to writings like a, a universal history which he never actually completes and create like Casabon a sterile wisdom into grey garners I pour the husks of time the vital seed has long since passed away lost in trash I know the madness of the day my towers of discarded folly stand alone on the outskirts of the rampaging town. Before long, the prophecies say the dark rider will take me to my trial and put all I know to fire. Then who will be left to pick through the ash? What druid will plant the last fired seed? And that poem, I must say, is also a sonnet. But uh, 
uh, Shakespearean form sonnet, but not strictly rhymed, but still basically compliant with the form. Uh, so there you go. That's five poems from Gathering Flowers of My Mind. Uh, and I'll just read finally the sort of last paragraph of the preface to the collection. This collection gathers most of my poetry up until the year of the pandemic. It is not a final collection, or at least it is not intended to be. I have in the works other volumes of both poetry and prose that will take less time to bring to the world. One of those proved to be from the Burning Archive. Uh, another will be 13 Ways of Looking at a Bureaucrat and... Later in this year, uh, there will also be another collection of poetry cantos uh, from a cage. Uh, anyhow, back to the story. While fame is not my spur, fear is now less of a bridle. And honour for the testimony displayed here keeps me riding on. After all, we all have little time to give that testimony and many ways to join the infinite conversation our ancestors once knew as literature. Whether these poems survive in the culture beyond the moment of their birth, I do not and cannot know. I can only repeat stubbornly Zbigniew Herbert's great words from the envoy of Mr. Cogito. Go, for only thus will you be admitted to the company of cold skulls, to the company of your forefathers, Gilgamesh, Hector, Roland, the defenders of the kingdom without bounds and the city of ashes. Be faithful. Go. Uh, thank you so much for listening to my description of, I guess, what both history and poetry means and why uh, they're not in, they're not separate, I guess, in my mind. And please, why don't you buy a copy of my book, Gathering Flowers of the Mind. You can buy it from Amazon and other retailers, online retailers, and there might be a few things in there that you might enjoy. And while you're at it, you can for free also subscribe to my Substack newsletter, uh, Jeff Rich, J E W F R I C H dot Substack, S U B S T A C K dot com. Sign up to that newsletter, you'll be able to chat with me, and also uh, you'll get a weekly. Uh, newsletter for me that will provide seven glimpses for seven days into the history and culture of the multipolar world. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, until next episode, when I will actually be talking about how I am writing uh, 13 ways of looking at a bureaucrat and what is the meaning of that uh, term, perhaps how bureaucracy and poetry are not so separate, just as poetry and history are not so separate. 
that's what I'll be talking about in the next episode. Uh, so until then, do remember what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee.